Well, we continue in the Gospel of Matthew. We, we read this passage last week, Matthew, the end of Matthew 17, um, or it was in the bulletin, I should say, and we're going to be picking it up today and continuing into Matthew 18. And this section of, of the Gospel of Matthew, as many of you know who have been familiar with this uh, preaching series, is when Jesus has now set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, in Matthew 15, uh, you might remember he was in the Gentile territory. He was there with, with the Syrophoenician woman in a place called Tyre and Sidon, a place that was very much not Jewish. Uh, that would be a, a place very much where the, the covenant people of God did not live, did not dwell. And then he goes to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, this is another place where there is a predominantly Gentile presence. Uh, this is Matthew 16. Uh, Jesus is there, and, and Caesarea Philippi is where Peter confesses for the first time that you were the Christ, the son of the living God. And then last week, we saw that he enters the region of Galilee. Now, Galilee would be like a state, you might say. It's a region. It's a broad geographic area. And it's likely where uh, Jesus' disciples are are from in a certain sense. And then this week, uh, we see that the town is identified. And so you can see that the geographic um, emphasis going from farther and farther away from Jerusalem to Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem because he says that he must die in Matthew 16. He must die. And so now this is the very end of Jesus's teaching ministry before he sets his face fully to Jerusalem. And the reason we know that is because there are five great discourses in the book of Matthew. Uh, the first one is the Sermon on the Mount. I won't go through all of them, but you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Well, this is the fourth one here in Matthew 18. And then at the very beginning of Matthew 19, at the very beginning of Matthew 19, if you were to look at that, you'd see that he enters into Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem is. Now, the geography hopefully isn't boring you, but it does tell us that Jesus isn't just saying with his words that he is going to suffer and die in Jerusalem and then raise again. He's not just saying that with his words. He is making his way slowly but surely. He's walking. He's walking from one region far away to a region a little bit closer. And now we see he's in the town of Capernaum in the place called Galilee, which is a a Jewish area. And then At the end of this discourse, Matthew 18, he enters Judea. He is officially on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in Judea. Well, between 17, that is where uh, the sermon on the the transfiguration happens, the the place that we are in today, the end of 17, and that that thing I just mentioned in 19, where he's going to enter into Judea, is 18, the fourth major discourse. And Jesus on his mission has uh, these questions or these conflicts come to him, which instead of enabling him to just go straight to to Jerusalem, these questions or these conflicts uh, interrupt his mission in a certain sense. And as a result, he gives teaching. So he's on his way, as I've said, geographically, we see it. We see it through his words, but then there's an interruption. There's a conflict And the conflict drives the discourse. And the conflict of our passage uh, to begin is about tax evasion. It's it's tax season. Uh, So this is relevant. (laughs) Not really. Not for that reason. It's relevant because it's God's word. But it's about tax evasion. And it's about a power struggle. If you ever were wondering... Is the, the Bible true? Are the, are the New Testament uh, letters true? Are the Gospels true? Hopefully this gives you a little encouragement. Uh, what do we know about the world? People are always in a power struggle 
And there is always tax evasion. Well, that's been going on since Jesus was walking on the earth. And that's what results in him giving this teaching in Matthew 17, 24 through 27. And then the power struggle is what gives him the occasion to give this great fourth discourse. And these conflicts, as they emerge, they keep revealing more and more of our triune God. On one hand, we see that Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. Because he is revealing his plan of salvation. And on the other hand, these conflicts that come, that cause for a miracle, that cause for a teaching, these conflicts as they emerge, they reveal more and more of our triune God. And the reason I say our triune God is because if you remember the sermon on the incarnation, it was explicitly triune. The spirit was present. The Lord referring to God the Father was present. And of course, Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, was present. And then the temptation narrative, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are present. The baptism, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are present. And then, of course, at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, we see it spelled out perfectly, perfectly clear. Baptize them in the name, that is the singular name, of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so on one hand, the stories of the Gospels are revealing how Jesus saved his bride, his church, And at the same time, simultaneously, they are revealing to us who God is. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is, of course, less prominent in Matthew because it's before Pentecost. Pentecost, Acts 2, the place where we see the Holy Spirit get poured out. We learn about the third person of the Trinity in a a new and a profound way there at Pentecost. And so it's not a surprise that the emphasis in the gospel narratives at times, the emphasis in the gospel narrative at times is on the Father and the Son. Uh, Such is the case tonight. The Father and the Son are the focus. As these conflicts come, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and then conflicts emerge. Today about tax evasion and about power struggles. These conflicts emerge, and they give Jesus an opportunity to teach about the Father and the Son. Now, Jesus could have just said, hey, guys, I'm not answering those questions right now. I have to go to Jerusalem and die. That is why I was sent, to save people from their sins. That's why my name is Jesus. He could have said that, but instead he continues to flesh out more and more for us, the father and the son and their relationship. And what's the point of doing that? It enables us to grow in our fellowship with the father and the son. An entire book was written in the 17th century by a guy named John Owen on fellowship with the triune God, how we have communion with the Father, how we have communion with the Son, and how we have communion with the Holy Spirit. And it's a biblical idea as well. In 1 John, 1 John 1.3, this letter that John wrote, it says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so the focus of these passages, these these verses tonight, is to show us how to have greater and greater fellowship with the Father and greater and greater fellowship with the Son. Well, how do we do that? How do we grow in our fellowship with somebody, our knowledge of somebody, our relationship with somebody? And that's what Jesus' goal is for us tonight, is to grow in our fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's why this teaching exists. Well, we have to first learn who they are. And so the questions that I'm going to structure this passage around first is who is Jesus? 
And second, who is the father? And as a, 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 a 1B, so to speak, who is Jesus and what does he love? That's 1724 through 184. Who is Jesus and what does he love? And then the second section, 185 through 1814, who is the father and what does he love? This twofold structure, I believe, will increase our ability this week to think rightly about, the, about God the Father and think rightly about God the Son so that we might grow in our intimacy which, with each person of the Godhead, the Father and the Son, by, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let's, get, let's go now to this, this question um, of, of, of who is Jesus. I believe that this, is a, this idea of growing in fellowship is something that Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to, to, to come to an increased knowledge of his father and an increased knowledge of his son. Uh, you may remember uh, Matthew, the very, the very middle of Matthew, Matthew 11, when we, the passage that I read for our, our call to worship each week, Matthew 11 Jesus says, right before he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, he says something about how he wants us to grow in our knowledge of God the Father and God the Son. Uh, Let me read it to you, Matthew 11. It's showing us that growing in our relationship with the Father and the Son is something on Jesus' heart. He says, Matthew 11, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Well, you notice, it is the Father's will to reveal the things about God's plan of redemption, reveal the things about God the Father to who? To little children. And then Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So on one hand, it's the Father's will to reveal the knowledge of God to little children. That is, people who aren't wise and understanding, that is, wise and understanding in their own eyes. People who are humble, people who repent, people who know that they need Jesus are the ones to whom the Father wills to reveal himself. And then the Son says that that he will choose to reveal the Father to whomever, whomever he wishes, to whoever he wishes. And we're going to see tonight who it is that he wishes to reveal the Father to. And uh, spoiler alert, it's the same as the Father. The Father wishes to reveal the Son to little children. That is those whom aren't, who are not wise and understanding. That is those who aren't arrogant, but rather those who repent. And if you were listening, uh, the focus in tonight's section is on the call to be like little children. And it explicitly says to be humble. The Father wants to reveal the Son to those who have a Christ-centered humility. And the Son wants to reveal the Father to those who have a Christ-centered humility. If we were to ask, who is Jesus? We're going to learn that he is God's Son based on this passage. And what does he love? He loves those who have a Christ-centered humility. And who is the Father? Well, he is the father of Jesus Christ. And what does he love? He loves to reveal himself and his son and to pursue those who are like little children. Well, let's prove this 
from this passage. Let's make sure that this is actually what's going on here. The first question, who is Jesus? 1724, the story that's, that's driven by this conflict of tax evasion. Now, they came to Capernaum, and they're probably in Peter's house. They're probably in Peter's house, and maybe this is even Peter's son in the narrative. Now, we know Peter's married. We don't know if he has children, but perhaps it's Peter's son. And a man comes to, to, G, to, to Peter in 1724, and he asks him a question. Uh, does your teacher, referring to Jesus, does he pay the tax? <laughs> or does he commit tax evasion? Does he pay the tax? Peter, ever ready to respond, right? Yes, he says. And then what? Um, <laughs> he came into his house. It's as though the, the, the tax collector stopped him on the way into his house, and he said, uh, does your teacher pay the tax? Uh, yes, he does. Uh, good to see you. On his way in. Yes. Well, then Jesus <laughs> initiates. He knows what has just happened. Somehow, the conversation has happened outside of the house, because we know right after it happens, Peter enters, and now Jesus there initiates. So, what do you think, Simon? I'm in verse 25. From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or others? Now, let me simplify that question. Peter, do kings tax their own sons? That's the question. Jesus asks, in light of his knowledge, which is likely supernatural, his knowledge of the tax collector's encounter with Peter, where Peter affirms that Jesus pays the tax, Jesus asks Peter, do kings tax their own sons or others? Now, Peter says, others. Verse 26, others. And Jesus responds, then the sons are free. That is, the sons are exempt from the tax. Now, before we go any farther, what tax was this? It was the temple tax. Now, some of you maybe are reading in a different translation than the ESV, the one we have in the Pew Bible, and it explicitly says, in most translations, it says temple tax. That's because the amount that this, this story reveals um, is very close to what the temple tax would have been. And they're in a, a, a Jewish territory, and so this tax is most likely not the Roman tax, but rather the temple tax. This has to do with most likely um, an application of Exodus where there was a call for all people to give a tax to the tabernacle in that time, and eventually it continued to, to morph and it becomes a temple tax. And so this temple tax is something that Jesus says that that the sons are exempt from. He uses an analogy of kings of the earth, and he says the sons of kings of the earth are exempt. Ah, but do it anyway. But do it anyway. If you, if you look at verse 27, however, not to give offense to them, he tells them to pay the tax. He tells them to do it anyway. Now, when we think about that, he tells them to do it anyway, there's a very uh, specific reason he doesn't want to cause unnecessary offense. He doesn't want to, to create a burden for people's consciences that he could avoid if he can. And to pay this taxes is not something that Jesus feels is, is, is wrong. And so he says, yes, we'll, we'll pay the tax. He says, I don't have to, but, to, but do it anyway. Now, some of you are thinking, what does this have to do with the question, who is Jesus? Well, the implication of Jesus' answer here is that Jesus is the son of the king of the temple. The implication of Jesus' little story here is that he is the son of the king of the temple. Do the kings of the earth tax their sons? 
No. No, they tax others. Well, if the temple tax is something that Jesus can do or not do, well, that reveals that he is teaching us through this little story about tax evasion that he is exempt. He is free from the temple tax. Well, who is free from the temple? Who is free from the tax? The sons of the king. Now, hopefully the logic is, is not so complicated here that we can't see what Jesus is saying. He's saying just as the sons of secular kings don't have to pay tax, then in the same way, I, as the son of God, do not have to pay the tax. The temple belonged to God. It was a tax to God. He is saying, I am free from that tax. Because why? It's my father's house. The kings don't tax their children. The temple is my father's house. He's not requiring me to pay the tax. But that we don't give offense. That we don't give offense. We'll pay the tax. The implication from just this tiny little story about tax evasion that Jesus reveals for us is that he is the son of God. Who is Jesus? He is the son of God. Now, whenever we read this story, and I I have to confess, I focus on the fish. I was once fishing with my dad. I really liked to fish. And um, I got bored and I set my fishing pole down. And all of a sudden, my fishing pole goes flying into the water. Well, that meant, of course, there was a fish. Caught my, my, my hook, and it took my pole in the water. I was so upset. I, I just caught one, but because I got lazy and impatient, I was, I don't know, I was probably 10, I set it down, and the pole went in the water. About 10 minutes later, somebody reels in a fish on the other side. And guess what they reeled in? I, it did not have a coin in its mouth. It had my fishing hook in its mouth. Another fish, the same fish, excuse me, got caught by another fisherman, and he, he had my pole. So they reeled it in, and you know, much to my uh, great rejoicing, I, I got my fishing pole back. My dad asked, like, hey, is this our fish? We caught it first. Yeah, we, we gave the fish to them. Now, I've never seen a fish with a, a, a coin in its mouth. All right? I've seen uh, a fishing pole get caught by a fish and then get caught by somebody else. But the point that I, I tell that story is because just like me, you start thinking about the fish and you get distracted. You start thinking, how on earth could Peter have caught a fish with a coin in its mouth? How did this work? How, how did Peter know which fish to catch? And, and, and the reality is we get distracted by this, this really fun little miracle that Jesus tells Peter to, to enact. We get, we get distracted by this. We get distracted by the fishing story and we lose sight. We lose sight of the focus of the narrative is actually on the deity of the son. He is, he is God's son. It is his father's house that they are to pay the temple to. The sons are free. He is the son of the father. Who is Jesus? He is God's son. You might have thought, I, I didn't need you to prove all of that. But Matthew, in this chapter, he started it with Matthew 17, 5, the, the transfiguration where the father says, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And if we go back a little bit farther, Matthew 16, Peter confesses, Peter confesses, 
You are the Christ, the son of the living God. If we go back to Matthew 3, the baptism, the spirit descends like a dove and then there is a voice that says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. I bring all of those references up to show us that the creator is the redeemer. God's son, the word, the one by whom the entire world was created is also the one who has taken on flesh, God's word who has taken on flesh and is now the redeemer. And Matthew situates this little story right after the transfiguration to draw our attention to the fact that God's son is who Jesus is. If we're wondering, is Jesus truly God? This is another little picture where when you think about Christ, you should be thinking about his magnificent power. You should be thinking about the fact that as Hebrew says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprints of his nature. Or Colossians tells us that he is the image of the invisible God. Or Philippians 2 tells us that he was in the form of God. Or John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Who is Jesus? This is the question that I believe Matthew is pressing on us in chapter 16 and chapter 17. And time and time again, he's answering it. He's God's son. He answers it directly through the father's voice at the transfiguration. He answers it through Peter's confession, which was a result of the father's will. And now he answers it by this obscure little story. He's making it explicitly clear to us that Jesus is God's son. Now, Whatever the situation is (laughs) that we're thinking about in our lives, that we're struggling with, whatever the the, the little problem that we're facing, like this little story about tax evasion, whatever it is that's, that's causing us to wonder about the power of God, to wonder about the power of Jesus. We can learn about Jesus and we see his humanity. It comforts us, encourages us. But whatever the problem is that you're thinking of, if you're lacking hope, The Gospel of Matthew is making it explicitly clear that Jesus, the one who became flesh, is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Word made flesh. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. When we gather, when we gather and we hear God's Word preached, we are gathering around the risen Lord the word who became flesh and conquered death. Why? Because he is God. The creator, the creator is also the redeemer. The creator, the one who knows everything about this world because he created it. Remember, how did God create the world? By his word, he spoke it into existence. Let there be lights. God the Father created the world by his word. And who is the word? It is the Son. The creator is also the redeemer. The creator is also the redeemer. He knows everything about this world and he did not abandon it when it fell into sin. No, the creator is the redeemer. And Matthew, Matthew is working to show us both the story The story of Jesus going to the cross. That's the sub, 
That's the, the, the primary narrative of 16 and 17 is Jesus must go to the cross. If you were here last week, you know that was the emphasis. But at the same time, this secondary emphasis, which is the focus for tonight, is that, that Jesus is God's son. Who is Jesus? He is God's son. Well, the second question that we're wrestling with as we think about who is Jesus is what does he love? What does he love? Who is Jesus and what does he love? We're trying to grow in our fellowship with Jesus. Who is Jesus and what does he love? Well, the second little conflict, as I said, revolves around a power struggle. Revolves around a power struggle. Verse eight, verse one of chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're most likely starting to feel the heat because they've heard Jesus say over and over again uh, that he's going to die. And perhaps they're wondering who's going to take over. Uh, They've seen the three go up on the mountain with Jesus, and so there's already a little bit of a ranking, perhaps, within the disciples, and they're starting to to feel uncomfortable by it. Uh, They they saw Peter uh, repeatedly keep answering these questions and and, and being bold, and so there's this question of, of, of essentially of power or greatness. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And by, by his answer, Jesus tells us what he loves. A conflict reveals more about the heart of Jesus for us. Who is Jesus and now what does he love? He perhaps uh, picks up Peter's son, and we don't know, but there's a child in that house, and he places them in their midst. So all the disciples are there, perhaps 12 of them, and Jesus takes this, this little child, perhaps this little girl or this little boy, and he puts them in their midst and he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn, now that's how we know that their question <laughs> is not morally neutral. They need to turn away from this type of thinking. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then verse five tells us, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now through this picture of this child, through this illustration, this living illustration, he teaches his disciples and he teaches us a lesson about what he loves. He loves the way a child is dependent on their parents in a good way. He loves the way their child assumes <laughs> assumes that their father wants to talk to him. Who loves the way a child doesn't posture, (laughs) but rather has a joy. Now, for those of you who've raised children, you know all children (laughs) have a sin nature, of course. I'm not trying to say children are perfect. That's not the point. That's not Jesus' point. His point is that children have a dependence, or as he says, a humility that enables them to trust that someone else being in charge is a good thing. To trust that someone else is going to call the shots. To trust that their father or their mother is someone that they can be dependent on. And we are asking the question with the disciples, who's the greatest? How do I become the greatest? I'd like to think of myself as great. What do I need to do to achieve greatness? 
And Jesus' answer teaches us about what he loves. He loves Christ-centered humility. Why Christ-centered humility? He says, whoever receives one such child in my name, in my name, whoever receives one such child, that is a humble person, whoever receives a humble, Christ-centered person, receives me. Jesus is reshaping the questions that we think of naturally, like who's the greatest? And he's calling us to turn. And he's calling us not to just turn to work harder or to strive or to think, oh yeah, I need to in some way uh, manufacture humility. No, 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 no. We don't have to manufacture humility. We have to rightly think about who he is, God's son. When we rightly think about who he is, which is what he's just taught us, that he is God's son. When we rightly think about the transfiguration where his face was glowing and his clothes were glowing, his face was like the sun. We don't need to conjure up humility. If we just rightly think about his power, if we rightly think about Christ's profound power that he created the world, if we rightly think about that, then what does it do? It humbles us. It makes us think, man, I, I want to turn from my sin and turn towards this Savior who is both the creator, that is God's son, has existed forever with God, the second person in the Trinity, this all-powerful and this almighty one, equal in power and glory to the Father, this magnificent one, when I see him rightly, crucified and resurrected, when I see him rightly, what does it do? It humbles me. It humbles me. It causes me to turn from my sin and to turn to my knees. Because I'm thinking rightly about my creator who is also my redeemer. I'm willing to turn to him. Why? Because he's going to the cross for me. I'm, I'm willing to turn to him and repent. That is to be humble. Why? Because he is God's son. The all-powerful creator of the universe. The exact imprint of God the Father's nature. The one who is in the form of God. The one who is in the image of God. All the things that the scripture tells. The one who is with God forever. It humbles us. And so if you're thinking, man, I want to grow in humility. Don't focus on humility. Don't focus on humility. If you think, man, I want to repent. Don't focus on repenting. Think about the son. The crucified and resurrected second person of the Trinity. Focus your sight on him. Focus your sight on who he truly is. It'll humble you. It'll bring you to your knees. It'll cause you to repent. When you see that kind of power and that type of glory, when you see who he is and what he loves, the result is that you become like a little child. You become like a little child. Well, Jesus goes on. He doesn't just tell us what he loves. He also tells us, in a certain sense, what he hates. Now, using the analogy of, of, of little children, continuing it, he doesn't, of course, mean little children. He means that we must act like little children. We must have a humility like little children. He says, he says whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, you notice the Christ-centered humility, who believe in me, to sin, it would be better um, if he were dead. It'd be better if he were dead. Now, Jesus hates when people cause his little children to sin. He repeats it. 
It can come from the world. It's going to come from the world. But he says he hates it. He pronounces a woe against it. And it also can come from within us. If you look at eight and nine, it can come from without. And he says it would be better if you were dead than to cause someone else to struggle in the relationship with Christ. And he can say, it says it could come from the world and woe to the world for the way it tempts us. But it also can come from within. He's hostile to all forms, all forms of temptation. He's hostile to them because they cause his little ones to stumble. But he's also hostile to our half-hearted obedience. Our half-hearted obedience. That's what eight and nine teaches us. And this is an extremely challenging set of verses. Whatever it is that you are thinking of that's causing you to repeatedly sin in your life, to repeatedly stumble, Jesus has explicit commands for you. Remember, this is God's son talking, the all-powerful creator of the universe and the redeemer. But he is, he is speaking to us here uh, with, a, with a stern, stern admonition. If, if there's something in your life repeatedly causing you to sin, Jesus says, cut it off and throw it away. If it's your hand or your foot, metaphorically speaking, cut it off and throw it away. It'd be better to enter, enter the kingdom of heaven, to, to enter eternal life with one hand missing than to go to hell with both hands. Or if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It'd be better to enter life that is true and lasting life and joy than to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus tells us what he loves. He loves humility. He loves Christ-centered humility, and he tells us what he hates. He hates people who are hostile to his little children, and he hates half-hearted obedience. And he's calling us not to a works righteousness. No, he's on his way to the cross. Remember, he's on his way to the cross. Why? To die for our sin. That's the point in the narrative we're at. He's not calling us to some works righteousness. He's calling us to full obedience. Now, whatever it is that you're thinking, man, I, I, I need to turn from that. I need to humble myself and I need to fully repent of that sin. Jesus is calling you to do that right now today. He's calling you to do that right now, today. Well, that's what this passage is focused on. Who is Jesus and what does he love? And then subsequently, what does he hate? And as we conclude, we also see that the passage tells us in 18.5, the answer to the question, who is my father? Who is God the father? Excuse me, in 18.10, who is God the father? Well, Jesus, again, comes back to this theme of the little ones. And he, again, repeats that we are to not despise the little ones. That is people who are Christ-centered and humble. Why? He says, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this passage is incredibly difficult. It, it, in some way, is the justification for why people think that, that children who die have, have an angel in heaven, a, uh, you know, some sort of angel. It's why you see a lot of angels in, in Gothic architecture. That's most likely not uh, what this passage is, is teaching. The little ones here are not babies. 
That's a metaphor. The little ones are the people that we should look to to show us what it's like to truly be in a relationship with God. And so this passage is not teaching, oh, little ones, that is babies who die, have, have angels in heaven. Though it's understandable why if you just took this verse out of context that you might think that that's what it meant. Instead, it's most likely saying that their angels is referring metaphorically to uh, people who have gone to be with the Father. Um, we see Jesus tell us that uh, people, people in heaven are neither married nor given in marriage, but they are like the angels. So most likely, Jesus is using that phrase, the angels, in the same sense here. Why should you not despise the little ones? That is, Christians, people with a Christ-centered humility, people who have turned. Why should you not despise them? Because they, their trajectory, their destiny, is to always be before the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, immediately, we get to answer the question, who is the Father? Remember, our first question was, who is Jesus? He is God's Son. But now, who is the Father? We see he is the Heavenly Father. He is in heaven. We see that he is personal. The angels see the face of my Father. He is personal. They are around him. They are in relationship with him. And then in a certain way, he is visible. <laughs> they see the face. Now, we know that this is a, a metaphor. God the Father doesn't have a face. He is, he, is, he is a spirit. And yet, it's teaching us something supernatural, something spiritual about him, that he is personal, and they are able to see his glory in a certain way. And so, who is the Father? Who is the Father? The answer to the question, who is the Father, is he is, he is heavenly. He is personal. He is visible, and he is also invisible. And this is why Jesus says that you should not despise one of these Christ-centered, humble followers. Because their trajectory, their destiny, is to always be around Jesus' Father. That's who the Father is. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is heavenly, he is personal, he is visible, and he is invisible. And so if you despise one of these little ones, you are despising someone who the Father sent the Son to die for. You're despising someone whom the Father will live with forever. It's a warning about the destiny of those who repent, of those who turn. And the destiny of those who repent and those who return, as we conclude, when we ask who is the Father and what does he love, we see we see that he loves the little children. Verse 14, it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Therefore, what does the father do? Because the father loves Christ-centered humility. Verse 14, it's not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Because he loves Christ-centered humility, what does he do? Now, he's like a shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep, to go pursue one of the sheep who's wandered away. He is like a shepherd who finds his sheep and rejoices over it more than the 99. This doesn't mean that he doesn't love the 99. No, it means that he rejoices over the one who was lost but is now found, 
Who is the Father? He is the Father of Jesus. He is heavenly. He is personal. He is invisible and in a certain sense visible. And what do we know about him? That it is his will or what he loves is to find sinners to bring them back to himself. As we conclude, how do we grow in our fellowship with God the Father and God the Son? We have to ask, who is Jesus? He is God's Son, the Creator and the Redeemer, the one who loves humility, the one who loves Christ-centered humility, the one who calls us to full obedience. That's who he is. And when we know that, we can grow in our relationship with him. We can grow in our fellowship with him. And then who is the father? He is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is heavenly. He is personal. And we will be with him forever. And what does he love? He loves to save sinners. He loves to seek out the one who has gone astray. He loves to bring the little ones back to himself. He loves them so much. He loves them so much. He demonstrates that love that is so powerful and so clear that he would send his own son, the second person in the Trinity, to be a demonstration of his love, to be a demonstration of his love. And so this week, as you think about the Father, and as you think about the Son, and as we know from the rest of scriptures, and you think about the Holy Spirit, think about the Father who loves Christ-centered humility and loves to bring sinners into his presence forever. And think about the Son. Think about the Son, the all-powerful creator and redeemer, who, as we will learn, enters into Judea and goes to the cross, a demonstration of God's love. Think rightly, think rightly about God the Father and God the Son that you might grow in your fellowship with him, all for his glory and, and (laughs) for our joy. Jesus will declare you great as you continue to grow in this regard. Jesus will declare you great as you grow in humility and Christ-centeredness. That is greatness in his kingdom. Let's pray. Gracious God, we rejoice that, uh, Father, you uh, seek out those who are lost. We thank you, Son, Jesus, our Savior, um, that you love humility that's focused on you. And we thank you, Spirit, that you have stirred in us to look to your Son, to look to the Son, and to look to the Father. And we pray that you would uh, give us um, a radical obedience to Jesus and a radical humility following him, all for the glory of the Father, we pray. Amen.